As Peter said, our reading this morning is Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me? Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Thank you, Steve, for that. And thank you, Pete, for leading us in worship. It's been wonderful to sing those songs of celebration and worship to God. It's been wonderful to see Pete's enthusiasm to get into Psalm 25. He, he couldn't even think about Psalm 24 because Psalm 25 is so awesome. And we're going to be looking at that uh, right now as we come to the, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, but before I do, if you'll allow me to pray, we'll just commit ourselves once again to our God. Heavenly Father, my God, my Saviour, the one who's rescued me, the one whom we can claim is a personal redeemer, who's rescued us out of the pit. It's good to come before you. It's good to pause before you. It's good to be here on your day before you. And so, Lord, as we come to you, may our minds be focused on you, May our minds recognize that your word is truth, truth spoken from the eternal God, from the all-knowing God, and may we treat your truth with the reverence that it deserves. Lord, speak through me, speak your words by the power of your spirit, and Lord, may we all be changed for the better as we hear what it is you have to speak to us this morning. 
We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who is Yahweh, and who is our Redeemer. Amen. Let me take you back to medieval England. Medieval England. It's a time where there isn't any Facebook, so you can't go online and check the status of someone else. It's a time when there isn't any car or motorised vehicle. So if you want to get somewhere, you're probably going to have to walk. However, having said that, there is a device which they had in medieval England which can perform both of those functions. And that device is the horse. In medieval England, I'm sure you're aware, that if you didn't want to get somewhere on your own two feet, you could hop onto a horse and let their four hooves carry you faster where you needed to go. But were you also aware that a horse reflected status and position so that the higher up in society you were, the bigger the horse that you rode? And so the king would have the the grandest, the tallest, the biggest horse, and all the noblemen would also have a, a large horse to reflect their high status in society. And so you can kind of tell, if you're just a pleb walking along, how important someone is by how high you have to crane your neck to see them on their horse. And it also means that if you're a child in those days and you really want a pony, that you're aiming low, literally and metaphorically. All of this is to say that this is useful historical information to understand a phrase we use today and a phrase that I wish to express to you this morning. And that phrase is, get off your high horse. So in those days, were someone to get off their high horse, they would be on a horse that reflected high status, and it would be an act of humility to come down from that, to come to the level of the everyday person. And so to get off your high horse is an act of humility. And I'm urging us this morning, I'm urging myself this morning to be humble, to get off our high horse. And to do that, we're going to read from Psalm 25, as was read for us earlier. And Psalm 25, more specifically, we're just going to look at verse 11. Now, some of you may be aware that I've preached a couple of sermons from Psalm 25 already, and this will be my third and final one as I wrap up my mini-series on it. And Psalm 25, it's worth going over some background just so we can picture in our heads where verse 11 fits and why it is so significant. And I'm dedicating a whole sermon to it this morning. So Psalm 25, you may recall, it has a structure of a sandwich. And no ordinary sandwich has the structure of a bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. And so we have our bread, we have our lettuce, bacon, tomato and bread. And what we recall as we read the psalm and as we look at how David writes is that the first section, verses 1 to 7, and the last section, verses 16 to 22, are full of petitions. And in it, David is listing request after request after request, petition after petition, rapid-fire prayers. And so these sections are distinct, and I call them the bread, because of those petitions. And it's from those that I urged you in an earlier sermon to get real, And be honest before God and bring everything before God openly, including your emotions. And then you get to the next bit, the salad bit, the lettuce and tomato, verses 8 to 10 and verses 12 to 15. And what we have in those sections is praise. David starts recalling how does God operate? What's the way God deals with people? And he looks at God's promises. And so he moves from petitions to praise. And from that I gave you a sermon urging you to get a grip on God's promises, and so let those promises 
um, help you in the way you live and guide your actions and your emotions. And that leaves the last bit, the bit in the middle and the tastiest bit. And that's the bacon, and that's in verse 11. And this verse is distinct because it's surrounded by all of those praises. It's surrounded by all of those looks at God and how He deals with us in His promises, and it offers up a petition. It offers up a plea for pardon. And so it's distinct and it stands out. And David has put it in the middle of the psalm here for prominence. In saying this, I am differing with many commentators. Because I read a whole bunch of commentators and they said if you look at Psalm 25, it just has three parts, by and large. So they said, if I put it in the, the Burgess sandwich converter, that it was just a ham sandwich. You had your petitions, you had your petitions, they're the bread, but, but the whole middle bit is one big section, one big section of praise. But if you're doing that, then you're looking at verse 11 as if it's misplaced, as if it's random. And indeed, one of the commentators didn't even mention it in his, in his analysis on Psalm 25. And so I'm here this morning to say, verse 11 is not random, and verse 11 is not misplaced. Indeed, it's given a place of prominence by being placed centrally. Ancient writers often, if they wanted to make a point really clear, would put it in the middle of what they say and have symmetry on either side, guiding you in to the central thought and the key theme, which is what we'll look at this morning. And David was just such a clever writer, such a master writer. We've seen some of the techniques, even as we've looked at the psalm this morning, his use of repeated phrases, his use of key words, the way that he makes contrasts. David is such a clever writer. He's not one for random insertions. And one thing that I haven't told you about this psalm is it's an acrostic, that poetical device where each verse starts with a successive letter. And so David starts verse 1 with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and goes on and on, all the way from Aleph to Tor. Or if this was a, an English writer, it'd be like your first line starting with A and then the next line starting with B and C and so on. And all this is to say that David, he didn't rush this psalm. He carefully considered every word. And it's a very well put together, well thought out and prayerfully considered song before God. And so there's no misplaced nature or random nature about verse 11. And so that's why I really like us to get into it this morning. And so without further ado, let's zero in on this verse, let's read it and see what God has in store to say to us today. Psalm 25 and just reading verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Let me read it again. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. We have here, in this one verse, a main request that David makes of God and two reasons which accompany that request. And so our main request and the two reasons will form our three points for this morning. And there's so much truth to be gleaned from it. But let's start just by looking at that main request. Now as we read the, the verse, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. The main request is pardon my iniquity. The main thing that David is asking God to do is pardon my iniquity. And so my first point this morning, we'll look at that, even though it does come in the middle of the verse. You'll have to forgive me for jumping around. I like to do that. 
So pardon my iniquity are the three words which we'll consider first up. And it's from these three words I'd like to urge you guys to get off your high horse. Get off your high horse. And I say this purely with regards to you and God and your relationship before your Creator. Get off your high horse. And I say this because before you can be in a position, like David was, to say, pardon my iniquity, before you can even get to that point, you have to free yourself from pride. You have to identify the prideful attitudes within and cast them aside. Identify those high horses that you tend to get on and get off them. Because there's no way to approach God with pride in our lives. And from what I can see, there's, there's three attitudes of pride which affect us. And I can see this largely by looking internally, and I'm sure it's common to all of us. There's three high horses which we have to get off before we can even come to God and say, pardon my iniquity. And one of those prideful attitudes is the attitude of self-sufficiency. The prideful attitude of self-sufficiency. This is the attitude that says, yes, there's things wrong with my life, but, but I can handle it. I can fix it. I, I can make it right. I can deal with it. I've got this. She'll be right. And it's an attitude promoted by the world we live in. The people that are self-sufficient are lauded. But it's not an attitude consistent with Christian character. A true follower of God will recognize the sin in their life and be drawn to God, realizing that only in His strength can it be dealt with and only He, God alone, can forgive. There's no one else that can forgive. And so an attitude of self-sufficiency thinks too highly of oneself and too lowly of what God can do. And so if you are having an attitude of self-sufficiency, if you are looking at your sin and saying, gee, I've really got to do this and, and try this and do that, by all means, I'm not saying be, uh, don't do anything, but you need to do it in God's strength and you need to come before God saying, pardon my iniquity. Without the Spirit's indwelling and without that confession of sin, you won't be free. You'll be stuck in your repeated sins. And so you can't be self-sufficient. You need to be God-sufficient. You can't say, she'll be right, mate, with regards to your sin. You need to say, God will be right. God will make it right. And this self-sufficient attitude, it can plague every one of us. But if it is plaguing you, get off your high horse and confess your sin before God. But there's another attitude, another prideful attitude that can prevent us from confessing our sin. And this is the prideful attitude of sinlessness. Of sinlessness. You see, the prideful attitude of sinlessness lives a life such that there's nothing in my life to confess before God. And this is an interesting one. Because if I were to ask you, hey, are you perfect? Are you sinless? You would say no. I know that you would say, no, I'm not. There's sin in my life. And yet, how often is our life characterized by those moments where we get on our knees and confess our sin before God? How often do we take time out from our day, the busyness of life, and pause and say, God, the things that I've done have hurt you. Forgive me my sins. And our actions speak louder than our words. And so even though you might admit in your head that you are not sinless, that you sin, 
If your life is just filled with the normal, everyday things of life and has no time of confession at all, then what you're communicating to God is, I'm, I'm sinless. There's nothing in my life that's offending you. There's no need for me to come and bring my sins before you because there's nothing wrong that I've done. And so your actions are communicating that prideful attitude of sinlessness. And if that is you, well, we need to stop. We need to stop justifying every single one of our actions. When we look back at our week, we can't just say, oh yeah, I was right in that state, and that state, and that state, and that was good, and that was good. We've got to recognize our sin. And that means coming before God, getting off our high horse, and asking for forgiveness, saying, pardon my iniquity. We can't be self-sufficient. We can't say that we're sinless. But another prideful attitude, and perhaps the, the sneakiest of all the prideful attitudes that can trap us, is the prideful attitude of being unforgivable. The prideful attitude of being unforgivable. And this is the person who says, God, I've sinned, I know I've sinned, and it's really bad, but gee, it's so bad you couldn't possibly forgive it. And this is the person who considers themselves unforgivable. And this person does indeed have a low view of themselves, as they ought. But it's a false humility. It's pride. It's disguised pride, but it's pride all the same. Because even though it has a low view of self, it has a low view of God. It considers the character of God and says, God, you couldn't possibly forgive this. And those statements, those thoughts, those temptations are making too little of God and taking away from the magnificence of his character and his ability to forgive to the uttermost and his extreme compassion. And so if you are suffering from thoughts that what you've done is unforgivable, that what you keep doing is unforgivable, you need to recognize that as pride. You need to recognize that as not thinking high enough of God. And in that sense, you need to get off your high horse and say, pardon my iniquity. And so those are three attitudes which can affect us, which can prevent us from getting on our knees and doing what David did here and saying, God, pardon my iniquity. And it's my prayer that each of us will recognize the significance of these three words, the importance of going to God and saying, pardon my iniquity. Because as believers here this morning, we're those that have been saved by grace through faith, but we're by no means perfect, we're by no means sinless, and admitting that means we also take the time to ask God to forgive us throughout the week. But if I can just address the unbelievers here for a moment, as bad as it is for Christians to not ask God for forgiveness, it's even worse if you're an unbeliever and you don't ask God for forgiveness. I'm just using myself as an example. I am saved, and so I know for sure that the penalty of my sin has been dealt with. I know for sure that I will go to heaven. And that's not because of anything I've done, but because of God's grace and God's mercy. And so the penalty of my sin is, is dealt with. But when I do sin, I limit what God can do through me. When I sin, I stunt my Christian growth. I, I prevent God from working through me as he ought. And so there's negative consequences. But if you are an unbeliever here, those negative consequences are far worse you're not just stunting your growth, you're adding fuel to the fire of hell where you will go unless you come to God 
in true repentance, accepting Christ as Lord. And so, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, it's even more important for you to come to God and say, pardon my iniquity and not suffer from any of those attitudes. Don't be self-sufficient, don't think you can deal with it because your sin is something that only God can bear. Don't think that you have no sin for we all fall short. God's standard is perfect. And don't think that what you've done is unforgivable. Recognize that God is rich in mercy and willing and able to forgive. And we'll investigate his character more in a moment. Pardon my iniquity. So David in verse 11, he's taken a break, as it were, from the promises of God, from relaying the goodness of what God does in life and presents his own personal request for pardon. And when he does that, it just reminds us as well that there's never a bad time to ask God to pardon your iniquity. There's never a time of the day where God will not accept your, your plea for forgiveness. And so, whenever it might be, you know your schedule best. Make time to confess your sin before God and feel free spur of the moment to confess your sin before God because this is a necessary part of our life as believers. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're, you're in a desert and you've been in there for months and you're extremely thirsty and you come across a small divot, a little pool of water and there's not much there, maybe 20 mils and it's grainy and it's sandy and it's really warm but it is water and then imagine that a traveller comes up to you and he says, friends, there's a well nearby. Come, drink of this cool water and this, this deep water, enough to quench your thirst and then some. And then imagine that you reject the genuine offer of this traveller and stick instead with your, your putrid, filthy, warm, sandy water. You are that person when you refuse to confess your sin before God and accept the gracious, redeeming nature of his forgiveness, the one that makes you whole and cleanses you of your sin. Don't refuse God's offer of forgiveness. Confess your sin, ask him to pardon your iniquity and get off your high horse. As we look back at verse 11, we see it says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And we've seen David's main request, pardon my iniquity, what he presents before God. And from that I've asked you, get off your high horse. But we see in the first part of the verse, for your name's sake, O Lord. And here David is, is providing a reason. He's providing a reason. And it's from this section, from these words, I'm urging you guys to get off your high horse for God's glory. Get off your high horse for God's glory. For your name's sake, says David. Now name is, is symbolic of God's glory and God's honour. And so God's glory is at stake in the forgiving of sins. So what this means is when you come to God and you confess your sins, God will forgive you and in that process God is glorified. God is magnified when you humbly come before him and ask him for pardon. And this is something that we don't consider too often. 
we'll readily admit, yes, God is glorified when we pray together as saints. God is glorified when we sing songs of worship. God is glorified when we reach out to the lost and give them the gospel. And all of these things are true and wonderful things to do. But recognize as well that God isn't just glorified in the right things we do, but in the confession of the wrong things we do. God is magnified when you confess your sin before Him so that He can be shown to be great in His forgiveness of your sin, in the demonstration of His mercy. As Christians, we're trophies of God's grace. And every time God forgives sin, it magnifies Him because it demonstrates more of His wonderful mercy. And so this is a, a motivating factor for us. This is something that we need to recognize so that we come before God regularly to confess our sin. Because when you confess your sin, you bring God glory. What a great reason to come before God and confess your sin. You'll get pardon and forgiveness and be made new and feel great from that perspective. I mean, if that's not reason enough, you also glorify God when you confess your sin. And so what a good thing that we should be regularly doing. But the opposite is very sobering as well. And the opposite being, if you hold on to your sin, if you cling to your sin and, and don't bring it before God, if you refuse to confess your sin to the Almighty, then you are robbing God of the chance to demonstrate His glory. You are stopping God from demonstrating His mercy through the stubbornness and pride of your actions. You are a robbing God of showing the greatness of His character in forgiveness by refusing to ask for forgiveness. And so, may we be those that want to see God glorified and so come before Him, seeking to magnify His name by asking Him to pardon our iniquity. And I feel this is a message we need to hear regularly because as Christians, we're in this life and, and we, we're trying to grow, we are growing, hopefully, in the, in the Spirit's power and becoming more like Christ. But life is tough. We are tempted and when we're not Jesus. We succumb to these temptations. And we need to recognize that you know, we're not able fully to, to keep the law because of the sin in our life. But we dare not leave it there as those that recognize the sin in our life and recognize that when we confess our sin, God will forgive us and be glorified we need to take time to come before Him, to say, pardon my iniquity for Your name's sake, O Lord. Let's consider the name. What is this name? David says, for Your name's sake, but then he names the name. He says, O Lord, and hopefully your, your version will have a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because this Lord, in all capitals, it's not just the normal expression of the word Lord, it's the expression of God's most holy, magnificent, beautiful name in Yahweh. So the holy name of God. It's just that a lot of Jewish translators were very uh, rigorous in their interpretation of the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And the Jewish translators of the Bible thought, gee, if we never say the name of the Lord, we can never blaspheme it. And so anyway, anywhere in the Bible they saw the name Yahweh, this beautiful holy name of God, they wrote it as, as Lord. 
That's Adon, I think it is, in the Hebrew, as an Adonai. And in that, they thought, we're not mentioning the name of the Lord, therefore we're not blaspheming him. But if we want to understand God's name, we'll do so reverently, but we'll consider the name of Yahweh, God's personal name. And to consider that, I'd just like you to cast your minds back to Exodus chapter 3. And you can turn there if you wish to. I'm just going to recount some of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading this and trying to get an understanding of God's name. What's this name that that David is appealing to in the forgiveness of sins? And in Exodus chapter 3, you have the story of the burning bush, where there's this bush that's on fire, but it's, it's not burning up, it's not being consumed. And this bush is just burning, there's fire there, and so Moses goes to check it out. And as Moses approaches, God says, Moses, the place where you're standing is holy ground, take off your sandals. And so what we see in God about to reveal his name is that there's holiness associated with the name. God is so holy that Moses has to remove his shoes. And as we read on, we see that God says, I am the God of your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And mentioning this, God is referring to his faithfulness. You might recall God made a promise to these guys. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and he kept that promise. And so God's name also has associations with his faithfulness. So when you see the name Yahweh, or Lord in capitals, we think of God's holiness, we think of God's faithfulness. And then he gives his name and he says, I am who I am. And God In this, he's speaking of the fact that he's eternal. God doesn't depend on anyone for his being. God wasn't created. No one made God. God simply is. And so his name is I am who I am, which you can translate as Yahweh. And so God is speaking of his holiness, and he's speaking of his faithfulness, and he's speaking of the fact that he's eternal. And these are all things that should come to our mind when we consider God's name. But what I found extremely interesting about the whole account of Exodus 3, kind of taking a step back from it and looking at it from God's perspective, if you will, why did God even reveal himself to Moses and speak his name to Moses? What are these circumstances in which God and his divine wisdom has said, let me give my name at this time? And those circumstances are God's people are suffering in slavery and God wants to rescue them. And from this, from the moments in time when God chose to reveal his name Yahweh, we realize that God is a God of compassion and God is a God of love. And this is the thing that motivated God to reveal his holiness and his power and his um, forgiveness and his uh, faithfulness. He reveals all of these things because of his compassion and his love. And so I guess what I want you guys to think of, when you consider God's name, when you consider God's character, think of God not just as a holy God and an all-powerful God who loves, but think of him as all-holy, think of him as almighty, and he is love. It's as much his being as any of his other attributes. There's no lack of love in God. And when we consider this, when we recognize that God's name is love, it's one of the attributes that describes him completely, we recognize that God isn't one who reluctantly forgives sin. 
When you think of forgiveness, you might think of forgiveness in a human sense. And a human might say, you know, if you ask them for forgiveness, all right, that's a big thing, give me some time, I'll think about it, I might be able to forgive you in time. Or a human might say, again? You've done that again and you want me to forgive you again? And these might be our human ideas of forgiveness, but that's not God at all. God is always willing to forgive. God is always ready to forgive if you humbly come before him with a true contrite heart asking him to pardon my iniquity. God is that father to the prodigal son with his arms outstretched waiting for him to come. God, as he revealed himself in Ezekiel 18.32, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, repent and live. And so this God isn't one who reluctantly forgives. It's in his name, it's in his character to forgive those who come before him. May that motivate you. May that motivate you to confess your sin to him and you can even appeal to God's character. Because God's name is good, because God is love in essence, he will forgive those who humbly confess their sin. And this is something you can count on just like David counted on it. God will forgive for his name's sake. And so we're motivated to confess our sin quietly and individually to our God. When we confess our sin, God is glorified. When we confess our sin, God is love and will definitely forgive us. And these things are tremendous motivations to confess your sin before him. We'll just pause now to come to our third point for the morning. And as we read verse 11 one more time, it says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And we have here David's main request, pardon my iniquity. So we know we have to get off our high horse. We have a reason, for your name's sake, O Lord. So we know we have to get off our high horse for God's glory. But then at the end there, David says, for it is great. And it's these four words I'd like us to ponder in our third point this morning, which is simply, get off your high horse, for God forgives many sins. Get off your high horse, for God forgives many sins. I could use the NLT and say he forgives many, many sins. But it's true of our God. As we look at these four words, for it is great, uh, let's start just by looking at David's honesty, looking at David's openness. He doesn't hide away from what he's done. He doesn't shy away from it. And he's not proudly proclaiming it, but he's not so ashamed of it that he can't bring it before God. He's open, he's honest, he doesn't construe it in a positive light, he doesn't justify it, he just tells God what it is as it is. Indeed, you'll see a similar thing um, with Paul when he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And so Paul did a very similar thing saying, my sin is there, my sin is real, my sin is very bad. And this too must, must capture our attitude when we come before God we come to God and ask for forgiveness, like any good follower of God, we need to recognize that we're not good. For it is great, says David. I'm the chief of sinners, says Paul. And these are two of the most mighty men that God has used in his plans on earth. And so when we come before God, let's be honest with our sin and recognize 
the extent of it, the seriousness of it, uh, the stench of our sin in the holy God's nostrils. We don't want to be those that present our sin as if it's small, because it's not. And there's two aspects to this. Number one, even if you have done a small sin, it's still a great offence in the eyes of an everlasting, ever-holy God. And so, in that sense, when you're coming before God, there's no sin that is small. And so, recognise that it is great. And then there's the other sense, when I speak to you, and I speak to you individually, you individuals who know your own mind, you know those motivations behind the good things that you do that aren't even pure. You know those thoughts that no one else can see except for God. You know the full extent of your wickedness and your capability of wickedness when you just stop and think about the things, not just that you've done, but that you've thought. I know that's very true for me. And what do we do with that? We present it before God. We ask for forgiveness. Where else can we go but to the Lord? For it is great. We present it to God. And He will forgive. But what's also really interesting is if you have a, a Bible that is more literal in its translation, is you'll have the word for. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And in my own estimation, I would understand it, I guess, a lot easier if it said, pardon my iniquity, despite the fact that it's great. Or pardon my iniquity, although it is great. Because you know, there's a sense of, of shame in presenting our sin before God, as there ought to be. But David uses the word for, which is the same word he used earlier in the verse. So David gives his request, pardon my iniquity, and he gives a reason, for your name's sake, O Lord, so you can be glorified, and that seems fair enough. But then he says, for it is great. And it seems as if he's presenting the greatness of his sin as a reason for God to forgive. And he is doing that. He is presenting the greatness of his sin as a reason for God to forgive. Because God is greatly exalted in the forgiveness of many sins. God is highly esteemed when people can see the amount of sin that he's forgiven. Or take a quote from Jonathan Edwards. The greater the guilt of any sinner is, the more glorious and wonderful is the grace manifested in his pardon. And I love that and I think that captures the essence of what David says here beautifully. The greater the guilt of any sinner is, the more glorious and wonderful is the grace manifested in his pardon. So what we're saying here is that God wants to exalt himself and glorify himself. God is glorified in the forgiveness of sins and God is glorified in the forgiveness of many sins. And God will lift up his name and pardon iniquity for all those who present their sins honestly before him, recognizing the extent of them and asking for forgiveness. This is the God we worship. But what it also does is it acts as a motivating factor, which is counterintuitive to our sinful thinking. Too often in our sinful thinking, if we look at our sin, if we look at that sin that we just keep on doing even though we don't want to, or if we look at those sins that are just continuously in our life, or that one really big sin that we did that just still haunts us, we can consider that 
as an excuse to keep away from God. We can bask in the unworthiness, as it were, and use it as a reason to stay away from God. But what David is saying is the opposite. If you have sinned greatly, that is a reason for you to come to God. If you have sinned excessively, come to God. Because He freely forgives. He fully forgives. And He is glorified in that process of forgiveness. And so your sins, big, small, everything's big before God, but your sins are a reason for you to come to God and not an excuse for you to stay away from God. Where else would you rather be but in a right relationship with the Father? And David knew this. And so he presents the idea that his sins are great. And this is a motivating factor for him to bring it to God so that he can get that right relationship and the joy of that walk. Consider the words of Jesus. He told a story in Luke chapter 7. Very short story. And he said there were two debtors who owed a certain creditor. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were not able to repay him, he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? It's not a trick question. The one who's been forgiven more will love him more. The one who's experienced great forgiveness will better grasp the great mercy that's been bestowed upon him and so will have much motivation to praise God. And this is but more reason for you in your sin, in your stumbling, to come before God that he may magnify himself. Now, in saying all of this, it is very necessary for me to pause and put to bed a falsehood, which some people have taken out of this verse, in that if God is glorified in the forgiveness of sin, we ought to intentionally sin so we can experience that forgiveness. And that is an utter lie from the mouth of the devil, and that is an attitude which does not display the humility which God promises to forgive the sins of. If you are having an attitude that, oh, I'm going to go out and sin lots so I can be forgiven, you don't have that humble attitude. And God will not forgive the sins of those who are not humble, who are not contrite, and who are not genuine. It's an odious presumption to think that if I intentionally sin more, God will be out to give me more forgiveness. That's not what this verse is about at all. When we read this verse, instead, we say, though we try not to sin, we do, and even though we do, God will readily forgive us when we come before Him. And so this verse is an encouragement to us sinners. It's an encouragement to us who are living the Christian life and falling down in places. And though we fall down, God will lift us up, God will forgive us when we come before Him, asking Him to forgive our sins and to pardon our iniquity. What we have here is a verse which demonstrates what we are to do. Even we could pray this prayer itself to God at regular intervals and it would glorify Him. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And so this week, we have another week ahead of us, another week of life and busyness, another week of things to do. But I urge you, in that week, to get off your high horse, 
just between you and God, take time to confess your sins before Him. Hit the pause button and ask Him for forgiveness, recognizing that He freely, willingly, fully forgives the humble and the contrite. And so I'm urging you to get off your high horse for God's glory and to get off your high horse for God forgives many sins. And in this we greatly rejoice that our God is good and He's promised to restore us. In closing this moment, in closing this morning, let me give you a moment just to to bow your heads, just to pray to your Father to make things right and to ask His Spirit to help you to continue to make things right. Let's just bow in silence for a few moments and then I'll close in prayer for the morning. O Lord, your word is convicting and we don't hide from that and nor should we and we we readily admit that which is wrong with us but we exalt you that you are a forgiving God. We esteem you that you forgive those who come before you humbly asking for help and we ask that humility will characterize our lives. We ask that you help us to just come before you and ask you for forgiveness and we pray that you will be glorified as you forgive our sins. Lord, we ask that we will sin less and less and less, but we know that we will still sin and we ask that you help us as Christians to glorify you as we bring those before you. We just thank you for your word and we thank you for your character and your name, which is indeed good and loving and merciful and forgiving. And we exalt you this morning, for you are worthy. Amen.